0: And if you like, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, continue to make our way through this great love song, love song to the loveliness of God on display in the law as one who stands in a new relationship to the law, one who no longer stands under the curse of the law, but one who sees the law as a vision of loveliness, a vision of of holiness, which came perfectly embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ, who now leads us in the path of righteousness for our great God's name, sake. So we'll take our reading from Beth, 9 through 16. This is the very word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it. On your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing on our sermon text for this evening. How excellent is your word, O Lord. Make it our heart's delight in the little bit of time that we have together to taste of heaven's riches of the shared joy in delighting in you as our God and the salvation that you have made known. What a good taste it is. How easy it is for us to forget as we go about our week that heavenly Jerusalem is our home. But the glory of Zion is our birthplace. And the light which now is extended unto us from the throne of Jesus Christ, our Lord, refreshes our hearts as we continue to make our way through this world of woe. How good and how precious your precepts. May they be a light and a lamp unto our feet as the Lord Jesus Christ shepherds, leads, and guides us. Attend now our time under your word. Posture us rightly meekness that we might receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls attend my words by the spirit making them more
1: making them effective
0: to bring about your heavenly purposes as only you can do as only christ can do as only the spirit can do and we delight that you are pleased to do this for we ask in christ's name amen Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49, and then we'll turn to the shorter catechism. You can flip there if you like, it's in the back, page 969. We'll look at question 17 and question 18. But first, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, this is the word of the Lord. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And question 17 asks, Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And question 18 asks, Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell. The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it my back was bothering me earlier this week I was trying to explain to Samantha uh, what i was feeling and how it was causing me to move in a labored manner trying to identify where the pain was and she said well on a scale of one to ten how bad is your pain it's like it's probably a 10 probably (laughs) it's kind of an interesting question isn't it interesting to consider just how at the mercy of patients doctors are in some ways you go to the doctor and they ask well what's ailing you he's like well my my arm hurts I've got this irritation on my shoulder. I seem to be bleeding from time to time, but I'm pretty sure I have the flu. The doctor says, all right, well, let's take a look. Oh, I see the problem. You've been shot. (laughs) Scripture talks about the human condition in a similar perplexing way. In one way, it's plain, original sin. It's obvious. We have a problem with God. We despise him. We don't want to do what he calls us to do. And this situation commenced very early. But from another angle, we're all like that muddle-headed patient who thinks we have the flu when we really have a gunshot wound. We have no accurate conception left to ourselves of what our actual ailment is, of what our actual condition is. You can look the world over and everyone universally will say, well, certainly there's a problem. Things ought not to be this way. Things are broken in some fundamental way. But then the diagnosis differs wildly. Our problem is oppressive political, social and economic structures. It's like, well, that's a part of it, but that's not the problem. Our problem is that we're just not satisfied with our life and we all should enter therapy. It's like, well, maybe, but that doesn't seem to be the heart of the problem. Uh, We're sick. We're dying. It's like, well, that's getting a little closer. We are sick, we are dying, and scripture is plain. Why are we sick? Why are we dying? The wages of sin is death. We're dying because we're sinners. We're dying because we are guilty and corrupt and fallen in Adam and have spent our whole lives exercising that guilt and corruption. It's wonderfully lucid, it's wonderfully clear, it's wonderfully plain, although it is a little bit heavy, isn't it? To know that we're guilty the moment we come into this world because Adam fell. We're corrupt the moment we come into this world because of the penalty due a guilty sinner. That's weighty. It's hard. And man has expended an enormous amount of effort trying to get away from that very plain diagnosis. But unless we lean into the diagnosis, we won't have the ears to hear the wonder of the cure, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the double grace extended to sinners, which we'll consider in a moment. So we look at the doctrine of original sin in this question. We can first ask, What is original sin and how does it relate to actual sins? Original sin is the estate or the condition into which everyone is born. Whereas actual sins are the specific sinful doings of individuals acting out of that condition. Do You hear that in the question. The sinfulness of the estate whereinto man fell consists in original sin together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. This is a helpful distinction. A shared estate, commonality, but particular manifestations, particular expressions according to a bewildering degree of circumstances, right? Right? the particular faces of sin hanging on all manner of variable that attends both the particular individual, the particular place, the particular exertions upon that individual, all of which stir up human beings to act out of this original sinful condition. If you have a Bible, you can look at Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, to get a biblical portrait of this reality. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the picture there is of God looking over his creation and seeing a tragedy, the work of his hands, those whom he's made in his image and likeness, those whom he's made for himself, those whom he's made to delight in him. He says, do any seek after me? No, they have all gone astray. It's a picture of God saying, all right, well, what direction is everyone going? Are they coming towards me? Do they seek God? Does anyone seek after God? No. They have all turned aside. They have all turned back. They have all plunged the other way and in so doing have become corrupt. It is a shared condition. All mankind in original sin. But then you look out and... Imagine, if you will, for a moment, what God might have seen. He would have seen a bewildering diversity of turning back. A bewildering diversity of becoming defiled. A bewildering diversity of not doing good. Have you ever seen the painting by Hieronymus Bosch, The Garden of Earthly Delights? Is it one nightmare, or is it a lot of nightmares? Have you ever read the book, The Painted Bird? Pat, don't buy that book. (laughs) The Painted Bird. It's one nightmarish scene after another, and you're left wondering, is this one nightmare or is this a lot of nightmares? The answer is it's one nightmare with all sorts of variations on the same theme where individual actors express their sinful conditions particularly and heinously. And this is what we hear in Matthew 15, verse 19. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, witness, slander. Original sin, expressed with the same generic continuity, but expressed uniquely in the heart of everyone who gives vent to that same fallen condition. It's a humbling portrait of man in original sin, acting out of that state of original sin. And there's a use to be made at this point. Presbyterians conventionally grow the church by having children. And there's a temptation to think that since we're born in the church and raised in the church and never depart from the walls of the church in any sort of violent or grotesque way, that somehow you're less of a sinner. The reality of the doctrine of original sin is sobering, for in the hearts of every single one of us exists the fountain capable of issuing forth In the most egregious sin. If God has kept you from the more egregious iterations of sin, take heart. He is kind, but be humbled. It's not because you wouldn't have done so left to yourself. There's a humility that comes to us. It's very practical when we see others stumble into sin, is it not? especially our brothers and sisters, for we all contend with the same foul fount. And though our sin is pardoned and increasingly mortified over the course of the Christian life, let us not for a moment deceive ourselves into thinking that this is because we do not possess the root, possess the source, and let that be we consider further this notion of original sin, the estate into which we are all born, the estate in which we still have a share, as the flesh continues in all of us issuing its foul demands, and we contend against it, against the, in the power of the Spirit. You can hear in the question that the classic definition of sin, the classic doctrine of sin distinguishes along two coordinates, guilt and corruption. Guilt and corruption. And the order is important. Man is first guilty and subsequently corrupt. Although man is guilty representatively, man is guilty by imputation. So first it says that the sinfulness of the estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. And we're rehearsing ground that we covered. In the covenant of works, Adam as our representative, Adam as one who grossly violated the law of God, pronounced in that verdict in Genesis 3, guilty, guilty, guilty. And that same verdict is true of all those who are in Adam. Romans 5.18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. The language is plain there. There are a number of different ways to frame the reality of sin. You can call it sin. You can call it iniquity. You can call it a departure, veering off the way. Paul says here, one trespass. Well, what is a trespass? Trespass is the violation of a law. That's what it is by definition. It is the violation of God's law. Adam, in the one violation of God's law, brought about what? Well, the sentence that you pronounce upon a lawbreaker. Guilty. You are guilty of this violation. And the sentence pronounced upon Adam is pronounced upon all those whom Adam represented. Which is who? Everyone. Everyone. Everyone pronounced Guilty because of Adam's transgression. You can imagine a king who tells his subject to dwell within the walls of his kingdom. And insofar as he remains within the walls of his kingdoms, he is in right standing before his king. And he enjoys the blessings of that kingdom being in right standing with that king. Now imagine that subject departed the walls and then had a child. By definition, that child is not in right standing, because right standing is within the law, within the walls. The child is guilty, by definition, as one who has been brought forth outside the walls. And then what subsequently takes place in that child's life? Corruption. It is a forensic reality. Guilty. When we say forensic, we mean legal. We mean verdict. We mean courtroom. We mean judicial. Guilty. 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 Man is first and foremost guilty before God. And he knows it. <laughs> he knows it at the core of his being. And this is intimately related to that organic reality of corruption. And the rest of Romans 5.18 invites us to consider A parallel between the two atoms to clue us in to the relationship between this forensic and what we might call an organic component to life before God. Romans 5.18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Do you hear the parallel We're invited to consider our union with Adam in sin and death in parallel. With our union with Christ in righteousness and life. Adam's trespass brought condemnation and that condemnation brought death in Jesus Christ. His righteousness brings justification. And that justification ushers us into life. There's a loveliness in the parallel, but there's a humbling component to consider that we are born guilty. We are born liable to the penalty that was pronounced upon Adam's transgression. Because that's the scene in court, isn't it? How does it go from a judge? I find you guilty and I sentence you. Found guilty means liable to the penalty. It means justly subject to the penalty that follows. And what is the penalty that follows the guilt of Adam's sin? It is corruption. It's death. It's spiritual and physical death. We make a strict division between those two, and I understand why, but they're intimately bound out. It is the principle of death manifesting itself in the spiritual death of Adam's offspring and the physical death of Adam's offspring. And we see how it's reversed in Christ. Life. Spiritual life now gradually intensifying, gradually strengthening over the progressive, sanctifying life of the Christian. Biological life then, the resurrection through the gateway of death through which we all must pass. Varied safely by the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just guilt, it's also corruption which entails this state of original sin. It is the want of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature. So we think of the corruption of man as both a lack of something and the introduction of something new and devastating. It's the lack of original righteousness. I don't know if you've spent much time thinking about what life would have been like for Adam in the garden, but it would have been wonderful. He was doing what he was made to do. He was communing with his God. He was discharging his responsibilities in true righteousness and knowledge and holiness. There would have been an intense satisfaction. We talk about finding your call, right? We talk about discerning what the Lord calls you to, the assumption being what? Well, if you put your hand to the thing that the Lord calls you to, there's going to be this internal satisfaction that you find as you do the thing that you were made to do. In the same way, mankind was made to exist in righteousness. There was this intense satisfaction that attended the life of Adam as he discharged this call in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And then that was forfeited. Forfeited in the fall. Forfeited in his rebellion. The want of original righteousness. Doing what he was called to do unto the glory of God in obedience to his maker and a profound satisfaction resonating in his soul. It's gone. It's gone. Tell me you haven't said at one point, I'm just not satisfied. I find myself deeply dissatisfied. It's because we don't walk in righteousness. For holiness is satisfying. But the problem is that even the satisfaction that we begin to take now in holiness finds another principle in our hearts that's constantly saying, no, no, there's satisfaction to be had over here. There's satisfaction to be had over here. There's life where all of this death is raining. And it's like, there's not. I've tasted but I can't learn this lesson. (laughs) I don't know why. The forfeiture of original righteousness is the losing of that we were made to have but then there was an introduction of something new it's not just the want of original righteousness it is the corruption of his whole nature when we talk about total depravity what do we mean we mean two things on the one hand we mean man's comprehensive corruption Man's comprehensive corruption. There is no part of the human being left untouched by sin. There is no part of the human being which somehow retains itself as a position of neutrality in the soul. The whole person is comprehensively corrupt. And We talk about various faculties that man had, but we're really talking about the same man from different angles. We talk about man as possessing an intellect. And how did our corruption affect it? We don't understand. We don't see. Our minds are darkened. Our thoughts are darkened. He looks down and he says, nobody understands. Nobody sees. And Jesus Christ kind of pronounces this as a judgment, right? Hearing, they never hear. Seeing, they never see. The understanding is so perverse that it can be put right in front of your face. They were staring at their God. They were walking with their maker. They watched his heart go to the weak, go to the lowly, go to the people as if they were lost sheep. He was standing right there. Let's kill him. didn't understand. Minds were darkened. Hearts were darkened, and this is intimately bound up with our affections being perverse. Jeremiah says the heart is dreadfully wicked and deceitful above all things. We want the wrong things, don't we? And we want the right things with the wrong intensity, don't we? (laughs) So we have disordered affections. We have perverse affections highlighting that man is comprehensively corrupt, and our wills are obstinate. Our intellects are darkened. Our affections are broken. And our wills are obstinate. Do this and live. No. <laughs> but I said you'll live. I don't care. You're a stiff-necked people. It's a constant refrain. Let's get this yoke off of us. Let us break apart his yoke. Let us cast away his fetters. That is an iron heart reflexing itself in an obstinate will. Do this and live. No. Why? Well, because you said so. And I'm not doing anything you say. Comprehensive corruption, no part of human being left unsullied, undistorted, unbroken by the fall. But it's not just comprehensive in scope, it's universal in scope. And we heard that in Psalm 53, didn't we? The Lord looks down on the human beings and sees, do any do good? Nope, not one. Is anyone left unscathed by this. No, in all Adam fell. We all bear the image of the man of dust. And this too is humbling. We could take up just briefly as an aside. Does this mean that no one does anything that in any sense can be called good? No, that's right. (laughs) There's all sorts of Praiseworthy acts that unfold in the world of man. We make a distinction here between good before God and good before man. And we're grateful that there's all sorts of good before man that goes on. We're grateful that God hasn't fully given over human beings to exercise the full intensity of the evil of which we are capable And we see that restraint, and we see this strange picture of fallen creatures managing to do good for other fallen creatures for wrong reasons as God's good gift of keeping things livable, keeping things from flood, disaster, utter chaos. And we rejoice. And we even call those things good. When a Marcus Aurelius rises up, and lead the kingdom in relative goodness, we say, that's great, because this could be a lot worse. (laughs) Really grateful for the breath of fresh air that such good before man can generate to other sinners, other miserable creatures. But is it done for the right reason? Is any good before man undertaken for the proper reason, which is for the glory of God in obedience to his word and reliance upon that word? The answer is no. None do good. And so we can acknowledge both the heinousness of sin and the goodness of God on display and still bringing about relative good in a world full of comprehensively corrupt sinners. And that's the first use we can make. We don't always live in the time of judges, do we? Very grateful for that. The time of judges, when no one could travel without being harmed. When no one was willing to use the public highways because crime was inevitably going to result. The fact that it's not always like that is astonishing, given the hearts that populate this world. So we can give thanks. Give thanks that we traveled here without concern for the molestation of our persons. That is God's good gift. Give thanks that we're really not super concerned that someone's going to plow through this door and take me out and whoever else is near me. That's a good gift that we can worship in peace and quiet is God's kindness to us. Do we give thanks for it? Or do we just take it for granted? It shouldn't be that way. Once you operate on the assumption that it should be like the time of Judges, it should be like the time right before the flood, once that's the starting point, whew, a whole panorama of Thanksgiving opens up. Oh, man. My pantry is full tonight. I'm going to have a frozen pizza quietly with my family. And it's going to be amazing. Because it could be like the time of judges. <laughs> and how good is our God? Give thanks, church, for the quiet, the peace, and the prosperity, which by and large has colored our whole existence. We can also be humbled and despair of our natural ability to do good. Our natural ability now is sinful ability. It wasn't like that now. It wasn't like that in the garden. But it is now. Sin is con-natural to us. That's a good way to look at it. Preserve the integrity of nature. God did not make things crooked. Acknowledge the pervasiveness of sin. Sin is con-natural to us. And be humbled. And delight in the portrait of salvation that's given to us. In scripture, as the God who has mercy upon sinners, as the God who raises the dead, as the God who gives sight to the blind, as the God who makes the lame walk, as the God who makes the deaf hear. For that's our dilemma in Adam. Deaf, blind, lame, dead. (laughs) Of course salvation has to be monergistic. Lazarus wasn't walking out of that tomb any other way than the word of life breaking in to a dead, dark tomb. So is every heart outside of a state of grace. It's humbling, and then it's delightful to consider the grace that has been extended to us. And the final use we can make is to seek rightly the double grace of God in Jesus Christ. Calvin talks about the duplex gratia. I think that's how you pronounce it in Latin. I kind of put an Italian flair on it because they're related, Latin and Italian. (coughs) the duplex gratia in christ is what well we're guilty so what do we need justification but this is not the end of god's grace we're corrupt so what do we need sanctification both of these gifts good gifts from a father unto children In a state of guilt and corruption, extending the righteousness of Christ in imputation to us in our justification and ushering us into a life of progressive renewal, progressive sanctification, wherein light is dawning more and more and more. Understanding is dawning more and more and more. Trust is coming to replace that obstinance of will painfully, slowly, imperfectly throughout the whole course of this life to be made perfect. In that third grace that we receive once more, where? That's right, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorification. Resurrection. When life and light becomes all in all and we stand before him saying... How worthy you are, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the good that you've extended to ruined and lost sinners. Let's pray. Father, it is a sobering testimony, and we give you thanks for its clarity, laying bare, the helpless and hopeless. Condition, which is ours in Adam. And were you to leave us there, were that to be the only word, certainly madness would follow. Certainly there would only be sinking down, sinking down. But what wondrous love is this? That caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. Standing in the stead of sinners, extending to us the gift of his righteousness which we had forfeited, and ushering us forth in the way of life, beckoning us to take up our cross and follow after him, for he withholds no good thing from us. May we trust you more and more as we look unto Christ and away from ourselves. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond with our Psalm of the Munch, Psalm.